Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On the 17th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we take a walk with the Ramblers Kate Ashbrook to find out about their latest campaign. We chat to two good friends of Walks Around Britain about the Peak District and... Up till then, all my hill walking had been done in the English and Welsh Hill, so the Scottish Highlands were much bigger and wilder than anywhere I'd been before. Chris Townsend tells of his epic long-distance walking adventures. Hello and you're very welcome to the 17th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast and the first of a new series. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide through the next 30 minutes of outdoor and walking chat and it's great to be back here every month with the podcast. In this series we'll be getting out and about much more including into Scotland, the Lake District and Devon and there's even a trip to sample walking further afield but more about that in a future edition. Now, in September, I joined the Ramblers in the Peak District as they launched their latest initiative, Go All Out. And to find out what that was about, I chatted with the president of the Ramblers, Kate Ashbrook, as we walked along part of the Pennine Way. Right, so Kate, why are we here in the Peak District today? Well, the Peak District is the crucible of the Ramblers Access Movement. Uh, It was here that the Kinder Mass Trespass took place in 1932, and although the Ramblers didn't support it at the time... We now recognise what a wonderful, wonderful effort that was and what it achieved, and we salute it entirely. Also, this is the first of England's national parks. It's the start of the first long-distance path, the Pennine Way, and it's a lovely place to walk and to feel the freedom and the fresh air and the peace of the countryside. So what's this new campaign from the Rambles all about? We want to know what people who go walking in the countryside and in the outdoors. Just go through this gate. We want to know what it is they particularly like about the outdoors and what they enjoy. And we want to know what they see the problems, the issues, what they think should be done about them. To inform the Ramblers as we prepare for the next 10 years of our campaigning work so that we really know what people want of us. Yeah. We, we know that we must make ourselves relevant to the whole population, the whole walking population, the nine million out there who go walking regularly. And we need help and advice and thoughts from those people as to how we should go about it. Because I think that the problem is that if an organisation doesn't elicit views from outside itself, that it becomes irrelevant in the future, doesn't it? There is that risk because the Ramblers membership is ageing. We know that, and that's the same with many, many other organisations. And we have some really brilliant volunteers, some of them really quite elderly, and I think their work is absolutely fantastic. But also, we need to have another generation coming in uh, to continue the campaigns. We need to talk to younger generation, as well as um, the older generation, to find out how we can retain our relevance. 
It's a tricky thing, isn't it, to find out ways of getting more young people engaged in, in the countryside and walking in particular. Well, I think that as they come out of their teens, people do want to walk and enjoy the countryside, but they're not joining the Ramblers, they're not, partic- they're not involved in the Ramblers, and yet they are benefiting from the Ramblers' work, and mm. they're benefiting from the fact that we've campaigned all these years to get the paths in good order and to win access to the countryside and to protect the countryside from damaging development. So, but they're not aware of that, and that must be partly our fault. We're not communicating well what we do, and so that's another issue. You know, how, do we, how do people become aware of, of what we're doing and see that it's important to them? Yeah. The consultation process is, is quite innovative in its approach, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. So, you know, we're, we're trying to use all the, the modern techniques. We also have trained some volunteers to go out and meet the walkers where they are. We're not asking anybody to come to us. We're saying we'll be there where you are. So they're going to go to car parks and popular walking places and be in pubs and around about the place talking to people. And we've just been to the Ramblers in in Edale and talked to people there and got some good thoughts and, and good views. So that's one of the ways we're doing it. And then there's also information on our website where you can click through and put your comments. And we've also got discussion kits so that if you're having a get-together in the pub after a walk, you can use the discussion kit to elicit thoughts and then send them in to us. Should just close the gate. Well done. <laughs> so the gate lock, you have to close it. We're trying to get more people involved in, in walking. And Do you think the history of, of the Ramblers is part of that conversation? Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, I'm quite staggered when I think back to the 1950s and how ramblers campaigned to get... First of all, campaigned for the law which said there must be official maps of public paths. That's the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act 1949. It said there will be definitive maps. Before we had those maps, if you went for a walk in the countryside and you found a blockage on a path, you had to prove that the route was a path hmm. before you could get anything done about the blockage and you probably wouldn't succeed. Yeah. So maps are really important. But then, having got the map in law, you then had to get the paths put on it. So we organised charabangs of people from... Uh, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, to go out into the Peak District and and North Wales and Mid Wales to claim those paths. A phenomenal exercise in the 1950s when people didn't really have many cars of their own. And organisation, very, very tricky as well. Well, exactly, you know, no no emails and any of that stuff. So difficult, but we did it and we we did a fantastic job. So I think, you know, what a great organisation that achieved that and there's been a huge number of other campaigns since for ordinance, saving the ordnance survey map and uh, saving the forests from privatisation twice. So, you know, lots of, lots of campaigns. A great organisation and a great ability to campaign, which we must continue in the future. And although in the age of austerity, going out for a walk is a free activity that you know, should be accessed by us all, we're finding this is not the case and that the cuts are impacting quite dramatically on what, on what we would like to do. Sadly, the cuts are having an impact because local authorities have priorities and I suppose it's, it's not surprising that they, if they've got you know, social issues that they need to be able to fund those. But we feel that should not be at the expense of funding on public rights of way and access to the countryside and country parks and urban open spaces, which are absolutely crucial for people's well-being. Mm. And, um, in fact, you know, really good for your mental as well as your physical health and a preventative so really the money should be coming out of the health budget 
and into those things because we're keeping people out of hospital. We're saving a huge amount of money on the health budget by providing the opportunities for people to keep fit and keep healthy. If anything in this country, we never see to be joined up in our thinking, do we? We always seem to be quite departmental. Absolutely. And, and this, is, you know, this sort of round benefit is never taken into, into uh, account, absolutely. is it? Absolutely, absolutely. But you know, the Ramblers are working on that with the, the Walking for Health campaign, trying to link up you know, the provision of the service by footpaths and access with uh, keeping people healthy and make those connections. And to tell the Ramblers your views, visit the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog. And you can get to that by clicking through from our homepage at walksaroundbritain.co.uk. Staying in the Peak District, earlier this year I was joined on Skype by two good friends of Walks Around Britain, Gareth Jones and the editor of My Outdoors, Dave Mycroft, to chat about walks in the peak. And we strayed on to the topics of long-distance trails too. So Dave, let's start with you. What would your favourite walk in the Peak District be? Most places that have got a pub. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is becoming more and more difficult to find in the Peak District these days with so many pubs closing down. Yes, it's, it's not good, is it? It's not. If I had to pick a single favourite walk, it would probably be Monselldale, Watercombe, Jollydale and Wydale. Going from the Monsell Head Inn to the A6 where the Monsell Trail ends just outside Buxton and back again. That sounds great. So how long is that, Woofley, do you think? Uh, it's about seven and a half miles each way. That sounds very good. Gareth, what would yours be? I don't know. I mean, there's there's so many different places that I would that I would choose. Um, it really would depend on, on who I had with me company-wise. Mm. So if I had the children with me, I think you can't beat a bit of of Padley Gorge basically just in terms of exploring and particularly if it's warm just letting them play in amongst the sort of streams and the rock pools is fantastic I've also explored somewhere I went to a place that I'd never been to before Winster um, which is a, a, a small village just in the White Peak and we did a short walk around there looked at, sort of out towards sort of Darley Dale and towards Stanton Moor and, and that way and that was an aspect that I'd never been before so I, if I had one place that I would go back to for me it would have to be Bleaklow because it's it's wildness, it's remoteness. I think there are very few places in the Peak District now where you can really get that feeling of sort of being away from it all. And if you're stuck in the middle of bleak low and there's a bit of hill fog and a bit of wind and a bit of rain coming down, you really do feel like civilization is a long, long way away. Oh, yes, certainly. So there's a big difference between the white and the dark peak areas of the Peak District. Gareth, which is your favourite area? I think it's, it's definitely got to be the dark peak for me. The, the white peak is, is absolutely beautiful and there's some stunning, stunning walking. And But I think for me, what I look for in my walking and when I get outdoors is, is for that wildness and that remoteness. And, and although there's some beautiful places, Dovedale, for example, in the White Peak, for me, the, the, the Dark Peak really does deliver it. Kinder, Bleak Close, some, some fantastic, fantastic places. I was wild camping on Grinner Stones last week, and um, it just, you, you're surrounded by just, it's very difficult to see any kind of civilization, let's put it that way. Dave, what do you think? Um, mm, well, Is I, it a clear cut for you? Well, well, I picked a White Peak location as my favourite walk anyway. I lived for most of my life in Buxton, and I used to be able to walk out my back door, which is in the White Peak, right, and walk in a straight line for seven miles and not come across another house. So there are parts of the White Peak that are as away from civilization. It's just knowing them, knowing where to find them, 
and keeping your mouth shut so that everybody else doesn't know where to find them. <laughs> <laughs> so what other areas in Britain are your favourite places to walk? Oh, it's too many, too many. Um, the Lake District, Snowdonia. I've, I've started falling in love with Cader Idris again. Right. Much, much underused because it's so remote from the rest of Snowdonia that I think it would fit in very much with what Gareth likes in terms of isolation and the feeling of wilderness. How does that sound to you, Gareth? I, I wouldn't disagree on that particular. I think Caleridris is, is beautiful. I mean, another favourite of mine, if you're looking to try and get away from the crowds a little bit, would probably be the Rinogs as well, just south, south of Snowdonia. They're just, right. There's some, some super walking. It, it's quite remote, and, and some of the, the paths can be fairly interesting, should we say, but it's not <laughs> as boggy as, as some of the, some of the, say, for example, like the Arons or the Molewins or whatever. So the Rinogs are, are probably my favourite at the moment um, in, in North Wales. And interestingly enough, living now down in the southwest is the first time I've lived in the southwest. I think a shout, I need to make a shout out for Dartmoor. I think it, it tends to be the forgotten cousin of the national park, stuck or stuck down as as far south as it is. Okay. But oh, I any, mean, again, anything but. If, well, if, you, if you want the neglected one, you're talking of Exmoor. Well, yes, well, yes, there true. is that as well, definitely. And, and actually, another favourite of mine, which a lot of people don't mention, is the Cheviots as well, too. It's mm-hmm. just sort of, yeah. I think those are sort of as, as kind of remote places or as places which are off the beaten track and don't get mentioned as much as, say, like the Lake District or maybe sort of Snowdonia. Yeah. Those those definitely get my vote. But also the Southwest Coastal Path as well. I've, I've been exploring much, much more of that recently. And, and Dorset and Somerset don't really sort of do wild. But when you, when you hit the Southwest Coastal Path, there's elements of, of, of that which are just so remote and just so beautiful it's 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 fantastic so that's another one that i would i would tip out there too and for remoteness of course you can't ignore noidart in scotland no. so you mentioned there about the southwest coast path what about some of the other coastal walks that we have in in britain obviously wales opened its coastal path last year i can't wait to do that i really can't have you have you, either of you chaps seen or experienced any part of it yeah uh, I've done a few parts of it over the years but uh certainly nothing since it's opened well, just like Dave, I've walked several parts of it over the years, but I haven't had a chance yet to go on some of the other parts that have been opened since the whole route opened. It's a really great achievement, and when you think about the length of time it's taken the English coastal path to get to the point that it is now, that the Wales one has been opened in such a speedy time. Definitely. I, yeah, I think we're actually getting to the point where we're coming up with an alternative to the American Triple Crown in terms of national trails and long-distance routes. With the Southwest Coastal Path, the All Wales Coast Path, and now with the Gore-Tex Scotland National Trail, that conveniently starts at Kirk Yetham, where the Pennine Way ends, you can now walk on a single trail from Edale right up to the north of Scotland. Yes. That sounds like a great trek, doesn't it? It does indeed. I mean, actually, Robin, who writes on Blog Packing Light, who's going to be doing part of the Appalachian Trail. I think he's going to be doing the, the most remote part, which is something we can't contemplate here in the UK, but it's basically it's a 10-day walk where there are there is, there is no one there, and so you have to literally carry 10 days' worth of food supplies with you. Obviously, you can refill right. water and the rest of it, but I think that's an experience outside of the UK that I would love to do. Dave, I know you've been across to, to America. It's, and it's I've done the AT. Have you done the AT as well? Did you do yeah, the Yeah, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Talk to us more about that station because that's the bit. It's the bit of the far north which really interests me. Is this ten day of total, total wilderness and remoteness? It's, it's by no means unique. Of course, you get that in all the other big trails in America. I guess it's it's no different really than a two or three day trip that you do just just for longer. 
for somebody who loves, you know, the the total out on your own experience, it's fantastic. The reality is when you're doing a long trail like that, that you don't notice how fantastic it is until several months later when you look back at your photos. At the time, it's just a case of first couple of days, yeah, enjoy it. From then on, it's like, oh, how long till I get to somewhere where I can stock up on food or sort out whatever's going wrong in the meantime? It's, it just becomes an obstacle to pass in many ways. So do you think there's an optimum length of long-distance walk? I think there are several steps that um, make a big difference. A weekend makes a massive difference over just going out for the day. Right. Even more so if you stop two nights out. I think my favourite length of walk would be, say, four to five days. But if you're doing a long-distance trail, something like the PCT or the Appalachian Trail or any of the, the really big ones, even, say, the Southwest Coastal Path, I think it's about six weeks before you really get to start appreciating the journey rather than it becoming something that you're pushing yourself through every day. I mean, for me, having never undertaken anything as long as Dave has done, I guess my ideal time out on the hills will probably be somewhere in the region of, of three to four days. I've I've never really done anything longer than that. I mean, I've got my eyes set on the TGO Challenge. That's a probably a good two-week journey that I would really, really love to do. And yeah, there's, there's parts of the PCT and the Appalachian Trail that I would love to do as well. But for me personally at the moment... I, th- I find the first day, if you're away for two days, it doesn't really sort of do it for me. It's the third day. It's actually having that sort of wilderness day in the middle, if that makes sense. So you have a day where you drive in, you set off, and you've still got memories of kind of leaving that lovely bacon sandwich that you had first thing this morning from the, the van on the way up to your walk or whatever it is you're going to. But it's that second day where hopefully you're starting from the middle of nowhere, you're going to the middle of nowhere, and with any luck, you encounter nobody that, that makes it special. So anything that's over three days where you get a solid day away from civilization for nice, me is, yeah. is the perfect well, three days is, of course, a very, very important number when it comes down to the long-distance walks. If you look at the statistics over the Pennine Way, the vast majority of people who quit, quit on day three or day four. Right. That's interesting. And is that, is that, is that when they go past your house, Dave, or is that, is that another <laughs> No. <point>? It, it, <laughs> surprisingly, it's when they've just done Kinder and Blee Close. Yeah, they have no surprises. It's that bit where you get up to the M62. We were walking on Bleak Cloud and we had a wild camper uh, just basically on the top. And then we came back on the second day via the Pennine Way, um, Bleak Cloud Head, and sort of came down through grains in the water and then down to Allport and the rest there. And we only saw two people for the whole entire day and it was two people on the Pennine Way and my God, they looked miserable. It, but it was it was one of those days where it was just <laughs> raining all time. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that's the day when they give up as well. Yeah, I mean, if you can, if you can start off on day four, from then on it becomes easier. <laughs> Dave, Gareth, it's been great to talk to you on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. You're talk welcome, again mate. soon. It was funny that we strayed into the topic of long-distance walking because few people in the world have been to as many places as Chris Townsend has. Chris is one of the world's most prolific long-distance walkers and a veteran of several huge solo backpacking trips around the globe. And Chris joins me now from the Cairngorms on the phone. So Chris, thanks for coming on our podcast. So tell me, how did you get into hill walking? Hill walking with the school, in fact. 
because I, I was brought up on the Lancashire coast where the highest hill was a you know, 20 foot sand dune. <laughs> so whilst I did a lot of walking, I mean, it was, I was brought up in a small, what was then a small village. So I spent a lot of time, you know, in the countryside, in woods and fields and the beach. Right. But there weren't any hills. But with, with my secondary school, some of the teachers organised trips to Snowdonia, the Lake District, the Peak District, which were all within a day's travel. Yeah. And of course, this was before any of the current legislation or litigation fears or anything like that. So it was all very informal. Teachers could just organise it and take people. There was no mountain leadership certificates, no health and safety, none of that existed back then. So it was a really good time then to get out and get into the countryside? It just meant that schools could organise yeah. things without having to go through a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah. Of course, I can see, you know, some of the things we did, looking back on it now, you know, we're hair-raising. <laughs> I mean, you'd have, you'd have one teacher with sort of, I'd know, 10, 12 of us traipsing along behind. None of the 10 or 12 of us knew exactly where we are, could navigate or anything. <laughs> so we're totally dependent on, on one leader. If anything happened to them, we were in trouble. Right. If they made a mistake, we were in, in trouble. You know, it wasn't ideal. And the equipment, I mean, <laughs> as I seem to remember it, it was basically, well, if it rains, you're going to get wet. And if it's cold, <laughs> you're going to get cold. You know, there's no way around that. I remember we used to be told to take a spare jumper in case it was needed, but to leave it on the coach so it didn't get wet. Right. <laughs> Good advice. So we certainly we weren't very light in those days because we carried <laughs> hardly anything. So then obviously you got into doing some quite long-distance trails. What was your first one? What got me hooked on long-distance walking was the Pennine Way, which I did many, many, many years ago when I was at college and I did it in the Easter holidays. But I really enjoyed that and thought I'd like to do something longer. So the obvious one in the UK is Langdon to John Groats. So that was the first, you know, really long walk I did. But doing that, I discovered the Scottish Highlands. Up till then, all my hill walking, you know, had been done in the English and Welsh hills. So the Scottish Highlands were much bigger and wilder than anywhere I'd been before. So I knew then that, well, I wanted to do long walks, you know, in wilder places. But the next one after that was the Pacific Crest Trail in the USA, which was a big jump because that's... That's over double the length, isn't it? Over double length, yes, 2,600 yeah. miles yes. and running from Mexico to Canada wow. to a wide variety of features and mm. weather and so on and going through wilderness areas that made the Scottish Highlands look small. <laughs> the Land's End John and Groats walk that I did, which was mostly, you know, off-road, mm. was 1,200 miles. I would imagine you've got quite a difference in weather between the top and the bottom as you're travelling along that route. Yes, I mean, you start off in desert and even though I started in early April, mm. it's still very hot and dry and you finish in the North Cascades which is a, a fairly wet alpine area. I mean, I, I had rain and sleet for most of the, the last couple of weeks of the walk. So how long did that take you then? That, that took me five and a half months. Wow. There'll be some great memories there. Well, that, yeah, I think of all the long-distance walks I've done, mm. that one is probably my favourite because it was the first of the big ones overseas. I mean, I've never done one I haven't enjoyed, but that one is special, yeah. The next one was the Continental Divide Trail, which is 3,100 miles down the Rocky Mountains from Canada to Mexico, because I thought I'd go the other way. <laughs> um, and then after that, 
I wanted to go north, so I did a walk the length of the Canadian Rockets. Right. Which is not a trail. There isn't a trail name for that, and about half of it, there are no trails at all. And that finished on the border with the Yukon Territory, which looked interesting. <laughs> so I went back and did a south-north walk through the Yukon Territory from the border with, with the Rockies, with Alberta and British Columbia, right the way up to the Arctic. And that was nearly all off-trail because there's virtually no trails there. So that is the remotest wilderness walk that I've done. The Scandinavian Mountains walk came after that, which was basically walking south-north again to the mm. Arctic Ocean, but walking through the mountains in Norway and Sweden. I've just come back from being in the mountains of Sweden and Norway, and some of them do really have a feel of, of the highlands of Scotland. In a lot of ways, yes. You know, I mean, the highlands are quite varied. So are Scandinavian mountains, so you have got everything from huge plateau areas that, if you like, are a bit like the Cairngorms, to jagged rock peaks that are more like the cooling on Sky. The weather's similar as well. So you've got to be really careful with the weather. The thing with Scandinavia is it's generally, unless you're on the West Coast, not as windy as the Scottish Highlands, but it can be as wet. Right. So you've certainly got, you know, you've got to be prepared for a lot of rain. And a lot of the time as well, you're walking above, as in Scotland, you're walking above the trees. Mm. Whereas most of the walks in the USA and Canada, a lot of the time you're in forests. So you've got, you know, that protection. And you can drop down into forest to camp if the weather's bad, which you often can't do in Scotland or Scandinavia. So as you've been walking through different countries around the world, how do rights of way and public footpaths, as we know them in Britain, how do they compare? Depends on the country. I mean, of course, it's, it's very different in Scotland to England and Wales. Yes. In yes. Scandinavia, it's basically the same as Scotland, but the Scandinavians have had this right to roam legislation since, you know, the 40s and 50s. But basically, you can walk anywhere you can camp anywhere as long as you're not intruding on people's privacy or doing any damage and that's the position you know in scotland as well yes in the usa and canada what you've got which we don't have in virtually any part of western europe is you've got vast areas of government-owned land and most of the the trails and the wilderness areas are owned by the government right but that doesn't mean there's an automatic right to walk and camp anywhere. There is in most of those areas, but in popular national parks, there are restrictions. You can minimize the impact. Right. So in some of those, you have to get permits and you have to get an indication of where you're intending to camp each night. However, again, if you're doing a long trail, I mean, when I did the Pacific Crest Trail, you could get one permit for the whole trail okay. and the authorities accepted. You couldn't possibly say exactly where you'd be camping sort of four months down the line. That's but there is a big division in the States. Private land is private. You have no right of access. You know, there's no such things as rights of way in terms of right. footpaths unless the landowner grants it. Are there any long distance trails that you're looking at at the moment? Yeah, there's various things I'm looking at. And I'll probably almost certainly do something in the next year or two. I haven't made any absolute decisions yet. I'm not particularly looking at any named trails as such. I'm looking at areas where I'd like to do a long walk. I mean, the last one I did was the Pacific Northwest Trail, 
which runs from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean. Despite its name, there's not actually a trail yet. It's a very new idea. So really, it's an idea for a trail. It's a route. And that's the sort of thing I prefer. Mm. But I'm looking at a variety of areas from the southwest USA, Utah and Arizona. I'd like to go back there. In 2000, I did the Arizona Trail, which runs the length of Arizona, and which is fantastic, and which back then was in its infancy too. But I'd like to do a route there. I might do another long one in Scotland. As I say, there'll be something soon. That sounds excellent. Chris, thanks for coming on our podcast. Oh, thank you for asking me. And Chris will be appearing at the Buxton Adventure Festival on the 2nd of November. So if you want tickets, you better head to buxtonadventurefestival.co.uk now. Well, that's all from this first edition of the new series of the Walks Around Britain podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes to always make sure you get the latest edition. But until next time, thanks for listening and happy walking. <laughs>